able to remain standing just for a little bit longer, please do so. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, page 61, if you would like to use uh, a Bible from the pew in front of you, you could grab that, turn to page 61. Otherwise, turn to Exodus chapter 20, and I'm just going to read verse 15. And so, after I read this, then you can go ahead and be seated. I'll motion for you to to be seated, and then I'll pray, and we will spend some moments together considering this. Exodus 20, verse 15, this is God's Word for us this morning, and this is what God says, you shall not steal. Father, there is no word like Your Word And Father, even Your simplest and most straightforward words are profound. They are true. They are beautiful. They are good. So, Father, we pray that You would be near to us, even at work in each of our hearts this morning, stirring in us, that we would behold wonderful things in these words, that we would see something of Your love and of Your goodness to us in this instruction. For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Two things I want us to use as an outline as we consider verse 15, this eighth word. We're looking at these commands one at a time. First, I want us to understand the eighth word I almost chuckle at that, say, understand it, duh, what's there to to be confused about? But, you know, I don't know if you're aware of life in our culture, but we are having to go back and learn the most basic of realities from God's Word. The smartest people in the land can't seem to answer the plainest of questions. And so we want to look at this word And then we want to figure out maybe a bit of how to practice this word. It's really two words. The the eighth command is, as was the sixth and the seventh command, two words. In this case, the word no and the matter at hand. No stealing. As we understand better, as we seek to understand better this eighth word, I want to do so by uh, maybe... Uh, giving some uh, definition of what it means to not steal. Uh, But then I want to uh, take a few moments and unravel what I think are some, a host of assumptions or presuppositions that are implied in this command to not steal. Well, what does it mean to uh, define no stealing as we have no right to take what is not ours. We could stretch that out and maybe make it a sub-description. Sub uh, we have no right to take what is not ours. We have no right to take what is another person's. That's quite countercultural. Now, we could parse that out as the Old Testament does for us 
in uh, a host of ways. So we have no right to take what is not ours. We have no right to take what is another person's. We, we have no right to do that by any means, by deceit or by fraud or by uh, theft or by robbery or by cheating or by swindling or by dishonest schemes or by false advertising or by counterfeiting or by uh, charging excessive interest or by man-stealing, i.e. kidnapping, or by embezzlement, or by refusal to pay a worker's wage, or by tax evasion, or by manipulating the money supply and its value. That's not what common people do, but that's what um, uh, people in authority do. That's but that's something they'll have to answer for. Or we could even throw another form of stealing in by failure to worship God through our tithes and our offerings. Those are a whole host of ways that we could uh, assume the right to take what is not ours, that we could assume the right to take what is another person's. The other thing I find fascinating just by way of definition or description is that... um, In the Old Covenant, um, the penalty for stealing, for taking what is not ours, for taking what is another person's, uh, was heavily weighted on restitution. There there was no category of incarceration in the Old Covenant in terms of the legislative law itself, no category of incarceration for the crime or the sin of theft. Although there, there, there was this category that might, you might consider incarceration if you stole something and um, you weren't able to make immediate restitution. And in the Old Covenant, that restitution meant this. If you stole $100 from me, then you would have to give me that $100 back, plus you would have to give me an, another $100 because you had to know what it feels like to take what is not yours. So, really, the restitution was double. You say, well, what? I ain't got the money. I spent it already. I, I spent it on bubble gum. I remember when I was a little kid, my brother sent me down to the quick shop uh, to purchase some folders for his schoolwork. And I went down to purchase folders for his schoolwork, and um, they were out of the folders. And I had a whole pocket full of money to buy folders with, and uh, they didn't have folders for me to purchase. I bought gum and candy and a slush, and I guess I'd been gone so long enjoying my feast that guess who shows up at the quick shop? Now, you'll never know this, but my brother is six foot one. He was an all-American offensive guard in college. He's nine years older than me. So, for all practical purpose, I met God that day in the quick shop and had to face God for my crimes and my sins. Fortunately, I lived to tell about it. But if I didn't have the money to pay it back, because my point was I'm so enthralled by by that story, but uh, I didn't have the money to pay it back, then I would have to... um, I would have to enslave myself to that person in order to work 
to that person, for that person to pay off my debt. I just, it's very insightful wisdom for today's culture. Uh, is that, is it really beneficial to incarcerate a thief? Could there not be other ways to make that thief um, uh, bring about a resolution? But I can't wade into that. Some assumptions. In other words, for it to make sense, for there to be a category that makes sense, you shall not steal. That is, that you should not, you don't have a right to take what's not yours, you don't have a right to take what is somebody else's. Uh, there's some foundational assumptions uh, that help explain the backstory as to what makes uh, theft wrong, and, and even even what makes even what gives theft its ability to make sense. Uh, this command, "You shall not steal," no no stealing, presupposes uh, a category of a thing called private property. That, 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 that people can, quote-unquote, own things. So there is a distinction in life. For this category, no stealing, to make sense, there is a distinction in life between what belongs to you and what belongs to me. Now, the stealing has no meaning unless there is a clear distinction between what belongs to me and what belongs to somebody else, that there is a category of mine and a category of not mine. Thus, what the eighth word is, again, underscoring, is um, you and I do not have the opportunity, we're not afforded the opportunity to take what belongs to somebody else. Why is that? Because in some sense, then, the Scriptures endorse or um, embrace a concept of private property. Now, if I could run down a road just for a little bit and then try to get us back on the main highway, um, uh, let me just say something that I think is pertinent to this. On the one hand, I don't think the Scripture directly prescribes how a society should organize its economy, but it does affirm some things and require some things and assume some things that probably rules out certain economic systems. Any sort of economic system, uh, such as Marxism or communism uh, and socialism, um, they are not biblically faithful, for they undercut this first assumption that there is such a critter, that there is such a category as private property, that God does entrust to individuals this thing that this individual can call theirs, and that God does entrust to other individual this thing that other in- individuals, we could rightly say, well, that's theirs. The second assumption, building quickly onto that, so I'm going to put, uh, put a, uh, a clarifier onto this first assumption. While we can speak of this notion of private property, um, th- th- there's one huge clarifier in Scripture, and that is simply this. God is the owner of all things. Psalm 24, verse 1, tells us that the earth is the Lord's. 
and the fullness thereof. In other words, the Lord is the absolute owner of all things. So, having said that, under God, as per God's dispensing of His things to me and you, uh, under God, we can speak of this category of my things are my things and your things are are, are your things. At least that's how we would speak of it for now. There's another component I'll add before we're we're done here. Um, Thus, really what we're saying is that with the things that are our things, we are really stewards of those things. We are limited owners, in other words. We are not absolute owners. We are entrusted by God who owns all things with the right to have the stewardship to, to quote-unquote, own His things, uh, and therefore we are held responsible for the care and the management of the stuff that He entrusts to us. Now, that's huge if we pull out the implications of that, because on the one hand, taking what is not ours, taking what belongs to someone else, is, is a refusal to love your neighbor well. But if you back this up a little bit and understand the implications, not only is stealing wronging your neighbor, but stealing is mocking and offending our God, because the things that you are taking that belong to somebody else are actually the things that God gave to that somebody else. So you're saying, I don't like God's arrangement of how He ups and dispenses things. I have a right to overrule His decisions and take what doesn't belong to me that He gave to somebody else, because I don't like that. Not fair. It's not just. Oh, isn't that a big word in our culture today? What is just? What is just is what God defines as just. What is just is every one of the single actions of God. And when God thinks it's just to give this person this and not to this person, when God thinks it's just to give some people ten talents and some people five talents, And some people like me, just one talent, and I'm still trying to find what that talent is. But but anyway, here, but uh, why is that funny? Um, You making fun of fun of me? Say, why doesn't he just equally distribute? I mean, uh, you figured the average math there, wouldn't it have been like uh, I don't know something like uh, um, you know four and a half talents a piece? I don't know what it would have been like, but uh, uh, but why doesn't he just well? it's God. He, is, he, he can't be anything but just and fair, even when He unequally distributes His stuff. A third assumption. Um, the means by which God provides us His stuff to manage and to be stewards of is work. Work is the antithesis of theft. 
It is an econ- it's a part of an economic system of exchange. It is the means that God has orchestrated in this world. It's not a surprise that He would orchestrate work as a means of provision and exchange because, after all, who is He but the first worker? Which you ought to take that to mean, oh, Lord, work is such a beautiful, godly thing because it, it, it replicates who you are. You are a worker. You created, you made, you worked up all that exists. And now you've entrusted us to be, if you would, sub-creators or, or, or workers as a means to reflect uh, the God whom you are. Oh. In other words, you say, well, if... Um, Work is an, is an economic system of exchange, meaning that, well, to obtain what I don't have, uh, I, I need money to obtain what I don't have, and how do I obtain money uh, in order to afford what I don't have? Well, you exchange your labor uh, for money, and with that money, then you exchange that money for the, um, uh, the stuff that you want or need. In other words, all of it is a free voluntary exchange of goods and services. In other words, labor, work, effort is the biblically prescribed ordinary means of provision. It is what replaces theft as the means of acquisition. You say, well, I can't find a job that I love, which that is such a modern, recent, uh, self-oriented concept. You ask my dad, Dad, do you love your job? What has that got to do with it? Man, I'm working for an employer. I'm loading trucks, and in so doing, I'm doing good for for our our society because I'm helping to get things from point A to point B. I'm I'm providing a service for the the good of others, and and, uh, in addition to that, they give me money for that, and for that, I provide for my family. Yes, I love my job, not because of its existential satisfaction, but because it serves others. Work is necessary. It is beneficial. You might remember the fourth command. Six days you shall labor. This is not a new thing that's been sprung on us in the outworking of the Ten Commandments. To work, as I've already alluded to, to work is godly. And what I mean by that, it's godly because it's a lot like God. He's a worker. But I would also say that, that work is to be done in godliness. And what I mean by that is, is that it is to be done with an awareness of our dependence upon God. In other words, what we're shooting for here is not a good old Horatio Audra story of, of, of rugged self 
reliance independent of God. No, what we're looking for is, is biblical framework in which we are personally responsible for God for the work that we perform because of, of the resources, the ability, the energy, the heartbeat, the air that He provides for us to be workers. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. And yet, what he completes that as he says, and yet his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, it wasn't wasted. Well, what effect did God's grace in Paul's life have on him? He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. In other words, the evidence of grace in Paul's life was that he was a hard worker. And yet, not, he doesn't do that to brag because then he completes it and says, and, and, and though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Or how he framed it even in Colossians chapter 1. It's such a fascinating play on words. He says, for this I toil. I struggling, struggle, I, I work and I struggle. And he says, with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. I work because God is powerfully working in me. The air we breathe, the heart pumping that he provides, the opportunities that He affords, the protection that He surrounds us with, all are for the purposes of honoring God in our lives, in every aspect of our lives, but, but even particularly in how we are faithful, hard workers in life. A, fus a refusal to work, in fact. Now, these words will sound harsh, to our coddling, fragile ears. Uh, but a refusal to work in the Scripture, even in the New Testament, um, uh, is, is, um, has horrendous consequences. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the believers at the church of Thessalonica, and he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, certainly there's caveats here. There are people who are unable to work. There are physical factors and limitations that make it hard or difficult or even flat out impossible to work. That's not what we're talking about. Anyone who is not willing, isn't they not able? Secondly, this is not a, this is not a, a, a harshness in the sense that, and there are some people who faithfully work and still have difficulty making ends meet. He's, he's not calling us to turn a blind eye toward that. The other thing, and in life, there are unexpected catastrophes that none of us can reasonably plan for. So there are a host of maybe other exceptions that we could read into this, but we need to revisit 
an, an assumption in upholding the godly value of work. We need to teach our children and our grandchildren that to be like God is to, among other things, to know the value and the benefit and the outcome and the consequences of work. Paul goes on in this passage where he says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, he says, but busy bodies. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And you can look at it up later. This is, a, this is a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 through 12, that I stated at my dad's funeral, because this was my dad, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. You look it up on your own time. If I read it, I might cry. You say, well, I'm Joe, look, all this talk about work, what about trusting God? I mean, I'm just going to trust God to provide. Well, I do think that you and I should trust God to provide, but we need to clarify the implication of that. For in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Refusal to work when you're able is not an indication that you are trusting God. It's an indication that you are denying God. Yes, we must depend upon God. Every day when we get out of bed and go to work, we are absolutely dependent upon God for the strength and the focus and the ability and the energy to do that. We depend upon God to do the things that He has commanded us to do, not to depend upon Him to do the things uh, that we seek to avoid that He wants us to do or to circumvent what He wants us to do. So, when we say, do not steal, we imply of that that there is this category of personal stuff, a personal stuff that is a stewardship from the God who owns all stuff, and that the means that God prescribes, the ordinary means that God prescribes by which He would give us stuff that He owns is that we would work. Well, i got to go on. Practicing the eighth word. And I'll just try to do this maybe in about 10 minutes if I can. First thing I would say is um, the first way to cultivate the spirit of the eighth command, you shall not steal, you shall not take what is not yours, you shall not take what belongs to somebody else, is to cultivate a life of generosity. That sounds like an odd starting point, perhaps, doesn't it? But I would ask you to consider what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where he picks up the notion of stealing and thievery. He says in, in verse 28 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, let the thief no longer steal, so quit your stealing. And then he adds to that, but rather, so, so stealing is out in terms of God's will, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. But then he adds another uh, 
uh, clause to this sentence. So, let the, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And then he says, so that. So, there's an end game. It's not just, I get my stuff, and my stuff is my stuff, but so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so when is a thief no longer a thief? When he is generous with what he has earned. Jerry Bridges uh, has three descriptors here that really completes what I've tried to progressionally say. Three attitudes, if you would, toward stuff. The first attitude says... Um, what is yours is mine. I'll take it. The second attitude says, what is mine is mine. I'll keep it. And yet the spirit of Ephesians 4.28 says, what is mine is the Lord's. I'll share it. You see, rather than taking what belongs to others by the grace of God, Knowing and following Jesus, we cease becoming people who take what belongs to others and we become givers to others from what belongs or is entrusted to us. Work is honorable. Work is honorable, and when we see the honorability of work as a gift from God who not only gives us opportunity to work, but gives us the, the ability to do that work. When we, when we see it in its complete package, it's not just me, a mano, a mano, trying to earn my daily bread, but it is our Father in heaven who provides opportunity and provides the strength and the ability for that opportunity, that when we, when we see that full circle, then our hearts can be flooded with gratitude, and that gratitude overflows with generosity. So we're not harsh toward those who don't have. We don't just cavalierly say, well, I know why they don't have. They're not a hard worker like me. Well, that may be the case. It may not be the case. The point is, if, if you see someone else's need, you don't wait for some government agency to, to belly up to that. That's your brother or your sister. And I say that, and I, I, I not, but, I, but I say that in this context. If you belong to this church, you don't have any reason to steal anything. Because if you belong to this church, your brothers and sisters, we have money already set aside to care for you and to help you. We have men, our deacons, who exist to, to be on a moment's notice to fly into that and figure that out and to, and to solve that need. This is God's kind provision for us. He gives to us so that we could be generous as individuals and, and even as a church family. And in fact, even typically, traditionally, when we do the Lord's Supper, we usually mention uh, you have the opportunity to contribute to our benevolent fund that our deacons dispense. Uh, and, and yet, honestly, we haven't said that in quite a while because um, 
well, we don't need your funds right now. When we need them, we'll ask for them. We have supply right now. That right now, you wouldn't have to go out of here this morning and say, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I, I, I think I'm going to have to rob a bank right after church. Well, they're closed, and don't go to Chick-fil-A either. All right? Because you're going to lose out on that one as well. But, but you have people that love you. We are brothers and sisters. And we are called to be generous. A second aspect of practicing the eighth word is not just generosity, but um, the word contentment. You see, if we, if, if we trace the source of our actions and desires of thievery, it takes us to our hearts, doesn't it? Now, some people like to steal just because they're just plain mean. They just like the thrill of stealing. Uh, I'm not saying that's any of you, but uh, anyway, I hope it's not. But, but we are missing some tables from church. I mean, I can't believe you guys would steal those things and not return them. But, uh, but anyway, I'm just saying. Don't, um, but if, so if you've got a white table that's eight foot long and it's not yours, bring it back. And there's immunity this, for this week only on that. We won't press charges. All right? We need them back by Easter or you're going down. All right? Yeah. Where do the actions of thievery come from? They, 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 they really, you know, you only take, unless you're just plain mean or whatever, but you only take things uh, that are not yours because you want what is theirs. Our, our culture actually breeds those kind of bad urges, those sort of uh, cultivations of even envy. Our culture tells us, now look, you're special. You are entitled to what you don't have. Our culture says, and you know what? Those who have what you don't have, they don't deserve what they have. Oh, folks, that breeds a discontentment in the hearts of God's people. So, so watch the loves of our hearts. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, no, money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's what you and I inordinately do with the affections of our heart that ruins money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, slack of contentment, that, that some have, a, have, a, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Thus, the writer of Hebrews would say, keep yourself from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Connect the dots. How in the world do people like you and I, who are bombarded with advertising that is designed, could arguably be a form of theft, that is designed to convince you that you need this thing that you don't have. It, it breeds a, 
uh, an emptiness and a lack of uh, satisfaction and discontent in our hearts. You could be lovely and famous like me. The scantily clad article says, well, that, anyway, like, well, I don't want to be like you. I, I get the point. I don't want to be like me either. But, but, but how do we counteract that? How we counteract that theologically. We counteract that uh, with um, an awareness of the presence of God in our lives and an awareness of who that God exactly is who is present with us in our lives. And then one last thing. I just want to make sure we're clear about this. While if you read the last page of the book of Revelation, certainly thieves are those who are some of the ones who will uh, not be in the eternal state. And yet, I don't want you to conclude by that, that simply by not being a thief, that makes you a Christian, that makes you someone who is in right relationship with the Lord. A Christian is someone who refuses to steal, uh, uh, but that's something a Christian does. That's not how someone becomes a, a Christian. Let me read a passage, and then we're done, from Luke chapter 18. It's the, it's the famous contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector, who honestly, in that culture, I'm not making any snide comment about this culture, but in that culture was a categorical thief. Not saying anything about this culture. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves who were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, which is a form of thievery, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tithe of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Scripture tells us that that's the guy who went home in right relationship with God. While the Scriptures give us a host of commands, and even this morning, then, the command to not steal. We do not trust in our own righteousness and gloat that I thank God that I'm not a thief like some of you all. No, our relationship with God, while the outcome of that is we learn to not steal, our relationship with God is rooted in the fact that while we were still thieves, Christ died for us. And upon the cross, He gave His life for people who take. Upon the cross, having lived a perfect life of never having stolen anything, in fact, gave away everything, He gives away His life to absorb our sin and the penalty of our sin. He gave Himself for us that we might be rightfully adopted as well-loved children of God. And as children of God, we now have a Father who takes care of us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for all that Your Word instructs to us and teaches to us. Thank You, Father, for Your kind, good, beautiful commands. We thank You for the grace of Christ that even we who 
are thieves, could be adopted into your family because Christ has shed His blood to rescue thieves. He gave when we took. We marvel at that. And I would just pray, Father, that if there's any here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who've never turned to Him and trusted in Him and acknowledged Him and who are following Him, Father, I pray that You would open their eyes and that You would turn their hearts to Jesus this morning so that even, Father, as the rest of us sing the words of these songs that follow, the word of this, the song that follows, Father, we would do so with glad and grateful hearts that we have a rock and that we have a Redeemer in Jesus. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.